0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, Joining us today uh, to talk about a lot of his books, and we're going to talk about a couple in particular, um, is Matt Birkbeck. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, listen, uh, Matt. You've done you've done a lot of work here. I've I've, I've seen in your uh, in your list and stuff like that. How did you How did you get into this type of
1: writing, like this journalistic kind of investigation and crime and that? I actually, uh, I mean, I've been a journalist for many years. I started in radio in New York, uh, but I went. I actually kind of went backwards. I worked in magazines in the early '90s for Rolling Stone and. Entertainment Weekly and covered you know the music industry and whatnot. Uh, and then I kind of I moved to Pennsylvania and I was working for People magazine as a, as a contributor as a correspondent but I also took a job at a newspaper uh, and I began doing uh, one by one these in-depth investigative pieces and it became my forte. and uh, I did a really big one in 2001 on uh, mortgage fraud uh, and won a national award for it. And then just, you know, as far as the people work was concerned, I wasn't doing. I was really doing the kind of, you know, entertainment stories. I was focused more on crime and human interest stories. Uh, and so that was my focus for, for several years. And, and it was how I actually got involved in the Robert Durst story, um, which I first started covering. Actually, it'll be 20 years ago in October. So, you know, I continued on with the investigative work and that seemed to be, you know, I'm interested in it. And plus, it was something I was very good at doing. So
0: what is it about a case that actually draws you in to where you want to spend a lot of time
1: on it and write a book? So that's actually a good question, because people ask me that often. And basically, there has to be several components. Um, Number one, uh, you know, it has to be obviously something interesting about it. It doesn't have to be someone that people know about. So, you know, I've written, you know, a couple of my books were about people that, you know, folks for the most part never heard of. But the story also has to be compelling. It has to be multifaceted. And I only can really learn that once I do some research. So it takes me, um, you know, several months to really, get down. I was doing to get down to the bottom of a story. I actually was working on a book idea uh, a year ago or so for about six months. And then, you know, after talking to my agent, I just finally decided this isn't going to happen. Just didn't have all these different elements that I typically look for. So I ended up shelving it. So, um, but pretty much, it has to be something I know that when it comes out, people are going to be interested, but the story is going to go in different directions and then circle back and come to an ending. And um, you know that will attract me and will attract readers.
0: Now, now on your latest book, it says um, a beautiful child. Um, you you've done a sequel to that, right? Finding Sharon is Correct. that what, like what? Maybe explain that to us, because so, I'm not as familiar with that.
1: So I wrote a book. It was actually my second book. Um, in 2004, it came out, and this was a story that. No one knew about. It was about a girl um, who lived alone with her father in Georgia in the mid-1980s. She was a standout student, um, beautiful, and had a full scholarship to Georgia Tech University to become an aerospace engineer, only he wasn't really her father. He was a convicted felon and a fugitive who had kidnapped her when she was a toddler and raised her as his daughter. And the story goes off into just so many different areas. Um, And I just, you know, there was this photograph I looked at early on, and it had a picture of her when she was about five, six years old, sitting in this guy's lap. And you could just see the look on her face. I mean, you just had great empathy for her. What really drew me to the story also is that no one knew her true identity. So I spent a year on this book um came out in '04, and my hope the book did not have an ending which I know frustrates readers but my hope was that the book would ultimately lead to identifying this girl and it took 10 years um and that's exactly what happened so you know when the book was published I you know it was it was a it was a big hit in the, in the US it was um uh, it was uh, published overseas in several countries, so I was getting email from all over the world, uh, from folks who had, you know, were trying to identify her and had, you know, sent me names, and I would send the names to Washington to the National Center for Missing Children to see if we could do a DNA test. Um, long story short, the FBI ended up um, off of the book; they ended, which the, kept the story alive. They, with the um, cooperation of the National Center, they ended up interviewing uh, the, the so-called father. And so and he finally um, told us who she really was. So I ended up doing a sequel, which is called Finding Sharon, which came out a year or so ago. Um, and then I also went back to Oklahoma, where the girl is buried. She was buried under a false name. They had stolen uh, many names and used different identities throughout her life, you know, often stealing them off of tombstones. And we were able to get her real family together, um, and it was folks from around the country, as well as all the law enforcement that was involved in this case from uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we were able to replace her headstone with a real one with her real name, so um, which gave me great pleasure. So You just
0: sold me on a couple of books.
1: It's a remarkable – it's a truly remarkable story, but it also gets into this whole situation with missing children in America and how – you know, when a when a kid went missing in the 70s and in the 80s, it was, you know, the police basically said, you know, well, let's give it 24 hours. Well, you're giving it 24 hours, and this kid's going to be gone. So, um, you know, John Walsh, his story is um, pretty well known. His son was killed. He went on to actually, you know, it was through his work that the National Center was born. And over the course of decades... You know, now we've got AMBER alerts. Now, you know, a kid goes missing within two hours. You know, notices go out. So it's rare when something like this can happen. Um, but thanks to technology and some really great police work uh, on the part of the FBI, um, we were able to um, finally identify her.
0: Now, now with something like this, because I know I'm just finishing the book where it involved children, um, there, there's a big sense of responsibility um, with these types of books uh, to not only to the, to the victims, but the families.
1: Um, so that, that never goes away, does it? No, it does and It's a really, it's very insightful on your part. That's a really good question because in, there's so many, I mean, awful, terrible, violent, just, you know, even disgusting things that happen in the course of this story, because you're dealing not just with kidnapping and you're not dealing with um murder and death you're dealing with you know pedophilia which was something I I had to address but I didn't want to make it you know any any bigger than it had to be and so I just went into a beautiful child knowing that this story was just so powerful I had to find a really good way to tell it but just stick to the facts and just you know tell it in a compelling way where you're going to keep readers, Interested and even gripped for the story, which they were, thankfully, um, but just not go overboard and do anything disrespectful. Um, so, to that end, when I found when we found um, her real identity, I had reached out to her biological father, and he didn't want to initially talk to me or anybody else. This was in 2014, and then right before it was like Kismet. Right before we were going to have this ceremony where we changed her headstone in 2016. Um, he actually reached out to me, it was two years later, and he actually said, listen, you know, I've had a terrible time with this, as you can imagine. You know, I read your book, and I saw how respectful you were in terms of telling the story, um, and, you know, I'd very much like to talk to you. And we did talk, and he did end up coming. He lives on the West Coast. He, ended up, he did end up coming to Oklahoma, and he met his biological granddaughter that he didn't even know he had. So we were able to put family, you know, uh, pieces of families together, and it was it was pretty cool. But you do have to be very, very aware in doing a story like that, um, e- even in doing any kind of a crime story, as to the victims' families and how they're going to feel when they actually read the book. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a it's a it's a really really tough. It's a fine line to get it right, and not be too salacious, as they say, or something. Correct. Right. So yeah, that's crazy. Why why did this guy? Um, Take take this girl and w- w- kind of what was
1: what was behind this 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 guy doing this? So his name um, is Franklin Floyd, and I actually spent I spent six hours with him interviewing him in prison. Um, the first four hours were in St. Petersburg after he was uh, found guilty for murdering a girl in 1989. And he's just, you know, this is a guy who was raised in an orphanage, was abused himself, uh, just had a few screws loose is the best way you can explain it. And, you know, when you ultimately sit down with him, you know, two hours into the two hours into the interview, uh, you realize that this, you know, this guy is pure evil. Mm-hmm. And I actually had to get up and, and leave the interview room. They actually put me into a small interview room with him. And he had his cuffs on at first, but he asked to if he could take them off, because fortunately for me, he had acted as his own attorney during his trial, and he had access to all the discovery materials, and he had them with him. And he allowed me to make copies of everything, which, frankly, made the book. So I had, you know, all of his records going back to when he was a kid and back in the orphanage, arrest records and whatnot. More importantly, I had all of, we call her Sharon. Um, I had all of Sharon's um, uh, records, you know, from school, high school, whatnot. I, I, you know, had an autopsy report. Um, it was just, it was a treasure trove of information. So, but what makes these guys tick? I, I, I have no idea. I wish I can answer that question, you know, but, um, I can't. Well, people like that too, uh, you, know, quite often, they can go
0: up for parole. Like they, they, they they should never really be allowed out, should they? I mean, because we're not really, I, I, I don't know, because
1: how can you rehabilitate someone like that? Uh, you can't, and that's, a, and that's really important. You cannot rehabilitate a Franklin Floyd. So, uh, but the way, uh, you know, law enforcement, the courts work, you know, someone goes to prison, you serve your time, and you're out and then you move to a different state, you go do your thing again. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So, uh, you know, that's the way the country is built. And, unfortunately, this is one of the few things that, you know, we have to deal with as a society here. Uh, but he was truly a monstrous individual, and he's, and he's still alive. He's on death row in Florida, and he's still alive. Um, but, like I just said, truly a, a monstrous individual.
0: Yeah, but that's just crazy. I mean, if, if they can't be truly rehabilitated or fixed so to speak um how can they really blend back in society like do you you really want that person as your neighbor
1: correct but you've got groups like the aclu and others that would never let that happen they would just you know yeah they would point to the constitution they would point to the laws of the state they would point to federal laws and they would just say hey he has his rights you know doesn't matter how many heinous crimes he committed. He still has rights in this country, and, um, you know, and that's just the way it is. So, unfortunately, you really have to wait until he commits his next crime, and then he'll go away to prison, you know, usually for life.
0: Here in Canada, we have a – it's called the Dangerous Offender Act, and there has to be a whole trial to ensure that the person is a dangerous offender. But if they're deemed that, then they're held
1: indefinitely. And define, define indefinitely.
0: Yeah, for, for life.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I never knew that, um, but I would that would be something that they should consider here. I would be for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm all into people's rights, and he has his rights. And if he gets redeemed from his, you know, finds God or whatever it is, that's all good. But if he has mental issues that causes him to do things like this and he's not been rehabilitated or he's not getting help for that um i it just you know it just seems to me common sense not to mix that in common society that's all but um i guess that's uh, yeah you guess you're right you know i'll, I'll never win that one um <laughs> <laughs> now now a deadly secret and um Durst, how did you uh, get into that case? Like,
1: how how did it fall into your lap here? So back in 2000, I was a, as I mentioned earlier, I was a correspondent for People Magazine. And I had started working for People in the late 90s, and I typically covered crime and human interest stories for the New York Bureau, which meant I would go anywhere from Pennsylvania up to New England and even into Canada. So my editor called me. There was a big story in the New York papers, in the New York Times, and in the New York Daily News about this uh, heir to a real estate fortune, Robert Durst, and he had been suspected of killing his wife some 20 years earlier uh, in 1982, and then the case just went cold, in that there was a new investigation, only instead of being in New York City, it was up in Westchester County, which is just north of New York. And so my editor... We wanted to do a piece and she assigned the story to me and I ended up spending the next three, four weeks digging into it. And I did a piece that came out, it was probably one of the longest crime pieces that people had ever done. It was like five pages long. And it came out on December the 4th of 2000, I believe. And then three weeks later, uh, Durst had a best friend, her name was Susan Berman, and she had been... It was suggested that she had helped him back in 1982, um, you know, get past the police and all of that. Well, she's murdered in Los Angeles. And then this is where this case starts to go off the rails. So I didn't do another piece. I I stayed in touch with the people that were involved in the story. I got to know um, the the missing wife. Her name was Kathy Durst. And she was a – they had met in the early 1970s. He's rich. She's a blue-collar girl from Long Island. They meet, quickly get married. Um, first few years are are great for them, and then they just deteriorate to the point where she goes missing on a cold winter night in 1982. Um, I stayed with the story, meaning I stayed with the people that were involved in the story. It became national news once this woman Susan Berman was murdered. And then in Dece- in September, late September of... 2001. Um, I got a call from a screaming woman who was one of my sources on the story, t- telling me that Bobby—his Dur- call- name was Bobby too. I call him Bobby—was um, arrested in Galveston, Texas, for chopping up a guy. And This guy's name was Morris Black, and that's when the story really took off. So um, that's when I went to my uh, my editor. People suggested to me, saying, "Hey, you know, this could be a good book for you." And I always want to do a book. And I said, sure. So um, she helped me get uh, my first agent. And uh, I ended up doing A Deadly Secret. But the story, this is another story. So like A Beautiful Child, this one, out, one ended. There was no ending to it. Um, a Deadly Secret, there was really no conclusion. I told the story into what happened. You know, I'd asked, I gained access to the New York City police files from the 1982 case. I told the story of what happened then. I told the, about their marriage. You know, some really great detail in the book um, about Durst. And then, um, but when the book was published in 2002, it was before his trial for hacking up that guy in Texas, Morris Black. And so there wasn't an end to it. But what I came away from in doing the book, and I was just totally convinced about this, but this, he wasn't just a murderer he didn't just kill his wife and kill his friend Susan Berman basically in an attempt to cover up the, the, the murder of his wife um, and then hacked up this guy Morris Black in Texas, dismembered him because um, he thought he was a witness. I thought Durst was now a serial killer. Yeah. And so, you know, and that's where, you know, my direction, at least with the Durst story, I, I, I thought at some point in time he was going to get arrested again. Um I didn't realize it would take 50, 13 years, but, um, you know, it eventually happened.
0: So, yeah, because you, so you think he's killed more than just those three or, or, or not?
1: So I do, So and I'll tell you why. Um, when I went to Galveston the first time after he killed Morris Black, who he was living with a drifter, so he goes – so the, a year earlier, just to backtrack, a year earlier – Once the news of this new investigation into the disappearance of his wife is is out there, uh, he goes to Galveston, Texas. No one knows at the time, but he flees to Galveston. And he goes there, and we find out that he was masquerading as a deaf-mute woman. And he stole the identity of a woman he had gone to high school with. Uh, Okay. Then I, but then I find out, I'm interviewing the detective on the case down in Galveston. He takes me for breakfast, and we're talking. And he said to me, he just looked at me, and he goes, whoever dismembered Morris Black knew what he was doing, meaning he knew where to cut around the arms precisely. He knew how to cut the legs off. Um, he was experienced in the art of dismembering a human being. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, he's not a doctor, he's not a surgeon, you know, he's some rich guy who's hanging out, stealing identities, living with the, amongst the homeless, along with a private detective down in Texas, Bobby Basha. Um, she did a lot of work on this case. We had discovered that Durst had been stealing identities for at least 10 years earlier. And he had also been living in different states across the country and living amongst the homeless and transients. So, for example, he was in... San Francisco, he had a home in San Francisco, he had several P.O. box addresses, and he also had another home up in Eureka, California, uh, which is about five-hour drive north of San Francisco, right on the coast. And at that time, there were two women who went, two young women who disappeared, uh, a girl named Kristen Motiferri and another girl named Karen Mitchell. And I had gone up there to Eureka, I was doing some work for CBS News as a consultant, and the uh, they, they did a composite of the guy. He was spotted who who was seen with this girl, Karen Mitchell, and it was the spitting image of Durst. It was, without a doubt, Robert Durst. So there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggested he was a serial killer, and i have basically gone with it. Um ever since. And when I did report that, just one other aside, when I did report that right before his Galveston trial, um, I knew another producer who was very close to the defense team, Durst's defense team. And she told me that she was told that when Durst was very concerned about the Karen Mitchell disappearance, he thought he was going to be indicted. And his attorney, his Texas attorney, Dick DeGarren basically patted him on the shoulder and said, listen, let's worry about one trial at a time. So, yeah. you know, so it's really, uh, you know, it's been something that the FBI had decided to look at once he was arrested in 2015, following the airing of the jinx. And uh, FBI director at the time, James Comey, actually announced that they were going to be looking at thirsts and the disappearance of other people across the country. Um, but, of course, it was just for the TV cameras. It really never went. Um, it, never, it never really went anywhere. So, but I'm completely convinced that he's a serial killer, and I believe he's killed a number of people.
0: Now, was there a type of uh, how do you, how do I put this? Was there an MO behind this? Like, um, did he have a particular type of person he wanted to kill, or was it random? Or what do you think, um, what do you think led him to do
1: um, the killings? So in 2015, so. And if there's anyone in your audience that's not familiar with Durst, they may be familiar with the, – well, they're familiar with the Jinx, but don't know Durst. The HBO aired the Jinx, um, which was directed by a guy by the name of Andrew Jurecki. So Andrew had actually reached out to me in 2011 and asked me to appear on the Jinx. And I had declined, only, you know, Andrew and I had different ideas on what Durst was about. Uh, you know, I, as I said, I thought he was a serial killer. Andrew didn't, although Andrew did call me after the Jinx – after the last episode aired, and he just said, you know, Matt, you were right. This guy's, this guy's a serial killer. So, um, and he had spent some time with him, so he was completely convinced. So the Jinx airs and you know, we have the famous last scene where he's in the bathroom and he's mumbling to himself, and he sounds like there's, like, different personalities emerging. Um, and he, you know, says the famous words, killed them all, of course. So, um that becomes, you know, it becomes big national news um, and for a long time. And to this day, and then he's charged with the murder. He's finally charged with the murder of Susan Berman, for which his trial has now been postponed to April because of COVID. But soon after the, the uh, he was arrested, we hear, I never knew this, but the police in Vermont suspected him of in the disappearance of a girl back in 1972. And she had just visited – he had a, a health food store called, called all, all Good Things. And she apparently had been in that store. And then within an hour or two later, she's gone and is never seen again. So they, they were curious as to Durst, and they had suspected. Of course, it's all circumstantial. Right. Um, so these are all young women. You know, this woman was like, I think, 18, 19, 20 years old. Karen Mitchell was 16. Kristen Modiferi, Um was in, she was 18, she was from North Carolina. Her story was particularly sad. She, she came from this really nice family in North Carolina, went out to San Francisco for the summer, uh, I believe to study, or maybe on a fellowship, and working in a coffee shop, and she vanishes. So they're young women, someone once pointed out to me that some of these women, like Kristen Modiferi and Karen Mitchell had the same initials as Kathy Durst, who's made a name as McCormick. So, you know, I'm not one to, you know, hold up a sign and say, hey, this is a great clue. It was just something that someone threw out to me once. Uh, But they were young, you know. But then with the murder of Morris Black, that kind of throws that out the window. So I'm not sure if there's a particular type. I will tell you, though, that he did have an affinity for hanging around homeless and transient people. And to me, what that suggested was that he—let's just say that this idea that he is a serial killer is true. What better people to kill than homeless and transient people who no one's going to miss?
0: Right. So yeah, Mars—it's a, gr- it's a great victim pool, right? right.
1: Exactly. And he's—you guy has got—you know—his got, you know, family owns half of Manhattan, so he—you know—is the heir to, or he was at the time, to—you know—I think he had a hundred million in his own trust fund. So imagine a guy who wants to hang around the homeless, can kill them, and has an, you know, just unending surplus of money to finance whatever it is he's doing. Because he did drop off the map in the 1990s. No one knew exactly what he was doing or where he was. So, uh, you know, I think that he didn't necessarily have a type, other than I do believe that he was traveling around the country and he was killing people.
0: Yeah. No, it's just curious if he had some sort of motivation. I mean, Morris Black might have been not someone he intended. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't marked him. He didn't mark him to kill him. Uh, it just sort of happened because of something that went on.
1: It, well, you know, or he did know Morris Black because there's been some, some suggestion that they had known each other for many years. When I went to look at Morris Black, you know, typically you could find someone's history you know, you do you do, you do a search, and you can see, all right, this person was living here at some given time. He was living here at another given time. Morris Black had, like, a decade, a couple of decades where it was just absolutely nothing. Um, but the thing to me that was so interesting about Durst, and it was something that just got completely passed over by everyone and is rarely ever mentioned, is that he saw his mother die, jump off the roof of their home when he was seven years old. When he was 10, he was sent to see a psychiatrist. And after two sessions, the psychiatrist ended the sessions. And there's this letter, and it's in the book, and they talk about the anger he has towards his brother and his father and also how it's created this psychodynamic force which could ultimately lead to schizophrenia. So the bottom line is you're talking about a kid that's 10 years old that's got severe mental issues. And I don't believe he was ever treated again for that. So, you know, the doctor there is predicting that unless he is treated as an adult, you're going you're gonna to have a wild card here. Well, that's what happened. So, you know, to me, this went all the way back to when he was a child.
0: And, and when we talk about his father and brother, now, if I remember right, his father bypassed uh, Bobby Durst uh, to let his brother... Um, kind of run the uh, the business so Correct. to speak and so uh, I just wonder did they like when you were saying uh, Robert Durst went missing in the 90s and he was doing all this weird stuff living um, in weird places and did they, were they aware of this or did they just not care or they just weren't involved with him at all for that they whole were, time
1: they were deathly afraid of him they knew that he had they, – they thought they, – the family all knew what he did with Kathy. They just weren't going to say anything about it. He left he, – he was never, ever going to take over the Durst organization. His brother Douglas was groomed to take it over. This is what he did as a living. Bobby was Bobby was someone who just kind of showed up, smoked pot, you know, did whatever he had to do. He had his name on the door. But he wasn't in any way capable of running a company like that, ever. So when it was time for the father, Seymour, to finally make the decision and say, hey, this is how it's going to be, he just said, hey, it's Douglas. And, you know, Bob took it, obviously, personally. He was very upset by it, but it wasn't going to happen. Now, the family knew before then, and they continued to know after, that he was very dangerous. So, I mean, they said it back in 2001. His brother, Tom, uh, told one of the New York papers that he's crazy. And this was, what, 19 years ago? And then, as I wrote in A Deadly Secret, in the the newer edition that came out in 2015, following the jinx and following his arrest, uh, whenever Bob came to, he was living in Houston, but whenever he came to New York, Douglas would have him trail 24 hours a day. And he would also have extra security assigned to his home. So everyone in the family knew that he was extremely dangerous, uh, you know, could, if given the opportunity, be violent and even kill one of them.
0: Do they, do they um, stand beside him during these trials and like even the trial going on now?
1: No, they, no. <laughs>
0: no, they just walk away.
1: They, they walk away. <laughs> he, he's, on, he's on his own. He was on his own 20 years ago, and he's, and he's on his own now. So uh, But was, he, still, he still
0: has the same amount of resources. His trust fund is still there, correct?
1: Yeah, he was given um, – I mean, the numbers vary. It's somewhere – he was given a payout like between sixty and $90 million. Uh, but what's interesting, and I was just having this conversation with another member of the media last week, but the lawyers that he has now are basically eating away at his trust fund. So, uh, you know, his defense I – mean, he's been in prison since 2015 awaiting trial since five years. You know, the number $10 million already popped up. At least that's what was told to me. So by the time he gets through a trial, I mean he'll still have money left, don't get me wrong. But, you know, they're eating into it. So uh, you know, you're talking fifteen million dollars, you know, if the trial and you know, comes to oh. a conclusion next spring.
0: <laughs> well, they got him off on the uh Morris Black one, so which is which ab- was, absolutely crazy.
1: It was bizarre, but you know, when I, I, I covered the first two weeks of that and you could tell As soon as the trial started and it it continued on, you could see it was, like, you know, the major leagues with his defense team and, uh, you know, the rookie leagues with the prosecution. It was just – they were way in over their head, even with a case like this. And, you know, plus you add in a bizarre jury and, you know, and we had the conclusion that we got.
0: (laughs) I just couldn't imagine letting someone go when they hacked up a body, right?
1: They allowed the they allowed the defense team to create a narrative. You know, my friend Bob, he's really a nice guy, but he had no choice. And you know <laughs> yeah. Forget, the, forget yeah. the fact that he forget <laughs> the fact that he hacked up a body. He was really he was fearing for his life. That was just an action after the actual event of killing someone. Right. Yeah. Uh, That's crazy. So it was it was. It was crazy, it was insane. You know, one of the prosecutors, you just couldn't even understand what he was saying. It was like he had marbles in his mouth. So, and I'm, um, you know, I've often, whenever I've spoken about them, I try to, you know, be, yeah. you know, not too critical, but when you think about it, you just can't help but be critical. It was just awful. In the, in the upcoming trial, though, it's going to be completely different because the, the um, district attorney in LA, John Lewin, this is what he was born for, these kind of cold cases. So, um, their Defense Team is going to, you know, they, they've got a big challenge ahead of them.
0: Yeah, they got their work cut out. Well, what exactly um, have they got on him? And this is about his friend, right, Susan Berman.
1: So this is about Susan Berman, but what they were able to do was they were able to bring in the Kathy Durst investigation and the Morris Black murder to show that this was part of an overarching scheme on the part of Durst, that he killed Susan Berman to keep her quiet because she had helped him after... Kathy Durst disappeared. So Susan Berman and Bobby Durst have been friends since the 1960s. She's the daughter of a famous gangster in Las Vegas, Davey Berman. Uh, you know, their, her parents uh, died young, um, one committed suicide. You know, Bob's mother committed suicide. You know, so they basically, they were very, very close. They were best friends over the years. And she actually was his spokesperson to the press Once it hit the media, that Kathy Durst had disappeared. And she's even suspected of making this crucial phone call that he claimed that Kathy had made to the dean of her medical school, saying that she would not be in school that Monday, even though she had disappeared that Sunday. So she was a key figure. So when I started, when I was doing that people piece back in 2000, uh, the people who were close to the story, Kathy's friends, kept telling me Susan Berman was the key I had to reach her. Um, we tried to find her. I thought she was in San Francisco at the time. She wasn't. She was in Los Angeles. And I found out it was January 5th. It followed, it followed New Year. I got a call from one of Kathy's friends, and she's screaming on the phone. And, you know, I'd gotten a lot of these calls with this third case. People calling me, and they're screaming. Everyone's and she, screaming. <laughs> and she, so she's screaming on the phone, and she's, she's going, she's dead, she's dead, she's dead. And I'm like, who's dead? What are you talking about? She goes, Susan Burman. Susan Berman. I said, what? And so she explained to me that she just got off the phone with the state police detective, Joe Becerra, who's the guy who actually started this whole thing, okay, which is another misnomer. Janine Pirro had often gotten all the credit, but it was really this police detective, Joe Becerra. And he had told her he had reached out to Los Angeles. He was going to finally try to interview Susan Berman. As a courtesy, he was letting them know he was coming into their jurisdiction. And they told him that Susan Berman he was looking for was dead. He was killed Christmas Eve. And that's it. So that was like, you know, and national news is on this case. CNN, you know, is interviewing people, and everyone's looking at Bobby Durst.
0: Just crazy. So so I guess you figure he'll, he'll get uh, convicted this time.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I think, you know, if he had some really good advice, you know, there's a video. So when he was arrested in 2015, uh, John Lewin, the prosecutor from Los Angeles, flew to New Orleans. And he sat down with Bob for, like, a two-, three-hour interview before Bobby's lawyers showed up. And uh, I believe the video of it is available. It's on YouTube. And he almost got him to admit to killing these three people, including Kathy. Uh, But he said he wanted to think about it. He was looking for a place. He was looking for a prison to go to where he'd be comfortable. That was his primary goal. No. And yeah. so I would, I mean, honestly, I would think that if he was able to negotiate, you know, I mean, he's not going to get, you know, he's not going to get the Waldorf Astoria, but he, you know, get a, maybe he'll get a comfy bed somewhere where a view where he can see some birds or something. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, you know, I would, I would suggest that if he was, because he's very sickly now, he's in his mid-70s. And it's, you know, hey, tell us everything you've ever done. And, you know, we'll stick you in a prison and you'll have three meals a day and you have a place to sleep and, you know, try to make you somewhat happy. I I wouldn't doubt that he wouldn't go for it. His lawyers will not. His lawyers will just step right in and say, absolutely not. And, um, you know, give him this sense of hope that perhaps he could get get off of these charges. And I think that, you know, with what we've seen so far, I think that's going to be a very difficult task.
0: Well, it doesn't pay him. It doesn't pay them. For him to plead guilty to anything
1: um exactly right and they got another four or five million dollar payday coming up so yeah it's in their their interest to keep this thing going
0: yeah obviously the guaranteed income right yeah and and this is the same lawyers that got him off with the last case right so
1: with the exception of i believe one maybe two and there's some friction with these lawyers now although i think dick begueron is still the guy that's leading that's leading the show there yeah um but Yeah, he's got a couple of other lawyers. From what I understand, you know, there's some difference of opinion on how the approach should continue. And I'm not sure how that's going to end up when this actually goes to trial.
0: Yeah. I would think he's got some faith in them, but after that last one, so. Yeah,
1: of course. He got them off then, so he's going to be thinking, why not? Especially if they keep telling him, yes, Bob, we can get you off. But I think, you know, calmer and clearer heads should. And he does have a couple of friends. Um, you know, should try to have a word with him and, you know.
0: Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, I don't know, but how many friends could he have after all this?
1: You'd be surprised. He's got two or three very close friends. And, I I mean, one of them I was shocked by because it's a woman who is actually, you know, I've been in touch with her since 2005. She actually came to one of my book signings, and I met her when my Sammy Davis Jr. book came out right and she's just I'm, um, you know uh, a middle-class blue-collar woman who just you know believes in him and i don't i don't <laughs> get it but you know she's you know she's, she's she's loyal to him and continues to be loyal to this day yeah
0: yeah that's how you know we've seen stranger things all the time right so yes. it, just, it just goes on and on that's quite an amazing story um great book i'm listening to it now um now do you have a website
1: i do it's uh dot com
0: okay and... and
1: uh instagram site it's matt dot dot author okay. which i just which i just started and I actually have someone doing that for me because yeah, social media is not really my bag, so yeah <laughs>
0: Well, you know these these things keep popping up, right? So yeah, <laughs> well that's great. Uh, well, we're gonna We're going to have that on our website as well, so people can uh, find you easy if they uh, don't know how to uh, pronounce your name or say it, like me. Um, I was, hey, you know, uh, one other thing. You 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 did a book called um, uh, "The Quiet Dawn." Yeah. Um, now that looks really interesting, and and, and you're talking about. Um, King Penn, uh, what's that? Uh, Russell uh, Buffalino. Buffalino. And you, you've you uh, tied him to Jimmy Hoffa, hey?
1: So here's the Reader's Digest version, which is a short one. I was a, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been an investigative journalist for years. I was working for another newspaper, and I was covering Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania's entree into casino gambling in the mid-2000s, like 2004, 2005. And the governor at the time, Ed Rendell, was force-feeding a couple of candidates, and one of them was a fellow from the Scranton area with these long-standing mob ties. And so I started digging into it, and long story short, it was this incredibly corrupt exercise in terms of getting this guy with these mob, this mob history a gaming license. And he was ultimately charged for a perjury, for lying to a grand jury, about his relationship to Russell Buffalino. Russell Buffalino unbeknownst to me, was arguably the most important mobster in the history of this country. He, I mean, if you go through his life in the 40s and 50s and the 60s, and then in the pinnacle of his career in the 70s, where he's leading two families, he had control over Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters. I read about this. This is all in the book. Um, He had ties to Cuba and the dictator there, Fulgencia Batista. He had casinos in Cuba. Uh, he had garment factories in Pennsylvania. He had a restaurant in Midtown Manhattan that he operated out of. Uh, just a truly, truly remarkable individual. In 1963, the government identified him as being one of the most important and ruthless mobsters ever in, in, in this country. Only since he operated half the time, he was, and he was from Pennsylvania. Everyone ignored him. They said, this guy from Pennsylvania, you know, doesn't mean anything. He can't, he's not from New York. He's not operating from Chicago. And actually he was. So he was very good friends with Jimmy Hoffa. It was, as I write in the book, um, and there's a clip on my Instagram site. Uh, you'll see it's like a six-minute clip from this NPR program I did, History Detectives on him where it outlines how he had, uh, in 1975, formulated a plan that ultimately killed three members of the mob, Sam Giancana, actually two members of the mob, Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli, and a third person, Jimmy Hoffa, uh, because of this ongoing church committee hearing in Washington, which was looking into the CIA's ties to using mobsters to kill Fidel Castro. And Buffalino and Hoffa were very much involved in that. So it's a, it's a truly remarkable story. Uh, you know, it's one that I'd spent five years covering, and then it took me another year to start to write the book. Wow. So when you're doing a book like that, do you ever worry about getting hit? <laughs> I said, I'm not going to say. It was more during my coverage that I would have conversations. So, you know, I would get a call. I had gotten a couple of calls from the FBI, uh, about threats that they thought were real and they thought I should know. Uh, there was one of my sources was a um, member of what was left of the Buffalino family. And he was, I mean, supposedly committed suicide. He hung himself, but, you know, I doubt that very much because he died just a couple of weeks after someone was released from prison who he had actually testified against. So, yeah, there was a lot going on. It was one of the reasons, I mean, in 2010, I still I still continue to do stories like this, you know, although I kind of stretch them out a bit. Um, <laughs> I did a piece for Playboy in 2014 about the mob, the Secret Service, and a former Major League Baseball pitcher named Den- Denny McClain. And um, I had, that's up on my website if anyone's interested in reading that. So, you know, I still do these stories, but, for I you know, in, in addition to doing the work I do, you know, I also cover – um, I cover Wall Street, a particular area of uh, finance called securitization, which requires me to do a lot of digging, same kind of digging I would do, let's say, if it was organized crime or corruption. Only now I'm looking at the guys on Wall Street as opposed to, you know, the you crooks in Washington lots. or whatever.
0: <laughs> You'll find
1: lots. Yes, yeah, so, and, and I do. So, but that, it's, it's a, I'm glad you brought that book up. It's a, uh, it's a re- it was a really great story and uh, a remarkable individual in Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, and I see it's on audio, so I'll get that now. That's that I'm, I, I just love these good stories. Well, he's he, the jo- I'm sorry, he's the Joe Pesci character in the movie The Irishman. Yeah. Right. right. I was going to say, too, what did you think of The Irishman? Um, so I knew about The Irishman back in 2008 because the author of the book it was based on, I, he- I Heard You Paint Houses, Charlie Brandt, Right. Yeah, was desperately trying to get someone to validate Frank Sharon's story about him shooting Hoffa, and, and so he knew I was covering the Buffalino family, and he said to me, "If you hear anything, please tell me." So Charlie was kind of a weird guy in that. I did broach the question ultimately, and I it was I was told that Frank Sharon did kill Jimmy Hoffa that the story was true, but I was also told, and Charlie Brandt did not want to hear this part of it. Uh, that Sharon was not as important a member of the Buffalino family or to Jimmy Hoffa that he made himself out to be, which is what is in the movie The Irishman, that he was nothing more than a hitman used by both Hoffa and by Buffalino. Uh and that he was such a really dark and evil character. He was so dark he scared the rank-and-file gangsters. That's how dark he was. So... Uh, the movie, you know, I mean, I, it was a long movie. I thought it was kind of like Good Goodfellas redo. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like the same thing, the same style. Uh, you know, I already knew the story. I knew what it was going to be, so uh, you know, and it was kind of long. I think you know, half three quarters of the way through, I was kind of like looking at my watch.
0: But, yeah, yeah, they, they it it was drawn out too long for sure. Yeah, and I don't like the computerization of.
1: Yeah, that was bad. Yeah, that was they, they should have used the younger younger actors to do that. Yeah, but I, yeah. I, I had been through. But since, but Charlie had kept in touch with me up until the time I think it was around twenty twelve when I finished my book and told him what I found out about Sharon and he basically cut me off. Uh, you know, he had kept me abreast on what was going on with his movie. But they were having a really hard time getting this thing done, right. despite the fact that he had Martin Scorsese and De Niro involved, and you know, it was still really hard getting financing and all of that. So yeah uh, so ultimately you know they, they were able to get it done yeah
0: yeah yeah he's been on the show a couple of times yeah interesting well so so what's next you you've done quite a bit of good work so what what you got something up up coming up next or you so i just
1: ready? did um i'm actually so there's two things i'm working on i just finished my first um work of fiction i took a shot at doing a uh, fiction and uh my agent is now uh talking to different publishers so I'm um, expecting to have that finalized uh, sometime in September. And then for Finding Sharon, which we talked about earlier, you know, the sequel to A Beautiful Child, um, both books, which I can't get into too, too much detail, but um, I'm working on a project, and actually two projects involving both those books, um, which will bring it to an uh, audience in non-book form. So um, – I'm pretty excited about that. and hopefully when you know when the official announcements are made, I can is made I could I could share more about it. But um, as far as other books, you know there's some other there's some other things I had been working on, and is one i'm I'm toying with that involves James Brown and uh, what happened to him the last two months of his life. It's something I had been involved with. I did a piece about James Brown some time ago for Rolling Stone. And, um, there's a lot of information that, um, I have, and I've thought about doing it. I'm not sure quite yet. So I'm still, like I said earlier, you know, I like to put different things together to see if I actually have what I need to put a book together. Yeah. So yeah I'm still, yeah. I'm still thinking about that because it's, it's, it's a year or two of your life and you got to devote all this time and attention to it. And, yeah. you know, you really have to be, you have to feel you know, you just really have to be into the story to wanted to do that kind of time. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a process for sure. Well, it's been a great conversation, and I'm glad you could uh, talk with us today. Uh, we'll have your website and books up on ours. Um, uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, you've written some great books. Um, our guest has been Matt Burkbett. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks, Matt. Thanks.